In November 2019, Frank and Mike Lesseter welcomed Paul Wallum, an 88-year-old retired international harvester exec and two-store dealer principal, to our Wisconsin offices. After a quick meeting, they all jumped into Frank's Grand Cherokee for a visit with Case IH executive Scott Harris in Racine, Wisconsin, a spot that Wallum had not visited in 33 years. Through the interview, most of which appeared in the Our Dealer Story podcast, we discovered fascinating content relative to the international harvester story and what led up to the startling merger announcement of November 26, 1984, and what happened next. Here's a special historical style podcast to complement Farm Equipment's additional coverage of the international harvester breakup and Wallum's very successful 2019 book release. Before we head over to the Lester's conversation with Paul Wallum, I wanted to thank our sponsor, HBS Systems, for making this special edition possible. HBS is a multi-generational company that's provided leading edge systems and software technology for ag and construction equipment dealers for more than 30 years. Thanks to HBS for making this podcast possible. I want to talk to you about your book. Tell us, why did you do it? Tell us why you there was a need for this book to be done. In your, in your words. Because I hate retirement. I think it's a waste of time. And I had done everything I could to avoid it. I had uh, started a used golf cart business after I sold out the day, my business to my son. And that did great, except at my age, I was starting to have trouble getting underneath them and servicing them as well. And I'd buy them in the fall and restore them in the winter and sell them in the spring. When I got really bored, I started writing the aviation book and that worked well. Uh, all of the Civil Air Patrol, they bought a thousand books. And so that got me off in the interest saying, oh, this is fun. And then my wife got sick and that was the end of my travel. And I knew I'd be at home most of the time. And I desperately <laughs> looked around and what can I do that I know something about? because I'm convinced that nonfiction writing better be about something you have a lot of experience in. Well then, I think my wife was one of them that said, what more experience you have than Harvester? And that's what started it. Well, you seem to have uh, made a success of it. People come to me and say they want to write a book, and I say to them, anybody can write a book, but the key to success is marketing the book. I think that's so true. It's fun to do it. Yeah. It's harder to sell it. <laughs> I love doing it. That was really fun. But in my case here, I'm sure in yours, marketing was not hard because we've done that. But cheaper. So somebody, as the internet says, somebody who writes a book and then let's think somebody else is going to market it, it ain't going to work at all. Unless you're going to go to every bookstore in the country and sit there. And I don't want to do that. Yeah. And you're in your third printing, about, about to do your third getting printing. getting near the third, yeah. It's outstanding. Yeah. For a book that came out? May 1st. Of this year? Of this of year, the, 11 weeks and it was all sold. Why do you think it's it's done so well? Because so many people have such a memory and, and had not heard, the, particularly from the dealer and customer standpoint, why did this happen? A corporate tragedy did a good job of talking about the manufacturing level the International Harvester corporate level, but not Barbara Marsh didn't get into the dealer or customer level. And that's what I thought where the, the market was and that's where it really was. I want to read her book, Corporate Tragedy, which I haven't gotten to yet because it is kind of hard to find it. Oh yeah, because she did a very small printing. Yeah. I think 500 is all she printed. Yeah, Leo Johnson, who you know, offered to give me his and I said, I mark books up and I, I do it so I want my own copy. But someone who read 
Barbara's book and now has read your book, what did they, what did they glean after getting the perspective you you pulled together? I think um, more than anything, the fact that the company had not overnight failed, but as one guy that I interviewed said, you know, you can't blame it all on McArdle. He inherited a vehicle with four flat tires, which he did because the company started getting in trouble in 58 when deer went past harvester and volume of sales, 1958. So see, that was a long time before 1984. But they continued then to stay in the pharma, in the construction equipment business, which we never should have been in at all. We were enamored with the fact that maybe we can surpass Caterpillar. Dreamland, if there ever was one. We should never have had an overseas division. At the time, well, we should have had in early years, but at the time when I left the company, I told Mr. McCormick, why continue with an overseas division with a layer of, of, layer of cost when all the companies like RCA Whirlpool over the last 10 years have all got out? Of, of overseas division and have marketed directly to the overseas world. Farm equipment should have, trucks should have, construction equipment shouldn't be there. Those are the failures that I think uh, I was able to get across to people. Mm -hmm. I was immediately drawn to it just because you focused on the dealer side, which is a, which I think an off, often isn't is a perspective that people don't bother with. McArdle, and you did. McArdle invited us in, a dozen of us, to get our opinions and sat there with his shoes off and told us all the great things he was doing and thanked us for coming. We walked out saying he's just as big a dumb as we thought he was because he's all wrapped up in himself. And then we had a whole revolving door of management in those last four or five years that none of them, that they had a, not much to work with either. They shouldn't have had the jobs. Nobody should have given them that job. And when they got into it, they didn't know how to do it. All perpetuated the end. So when they sold out, like the Tenneco and others, did they bring in management people who didn't understand farm equipment business or not? Well, Case basically we're seeing right here, immediately from day one ran the organization. And all of the harvester people started peeling off. They either got out or got fired. Not all of them, but a lot of them. And so the people who were running the show at that point, like Jerry Green, were farm equipment people. What are your, some of your favorite stories in the, that you did for your book? What are some of the ones that pop out? Oh, the two farmers who were going different directions plowing when they both had the radio on and suddenly they both stopped at the same time in the middle of the field. When they heard the announcement, stopped, walked to meet each other in the middle of the field to talk about it. I never forgot that. Mm -hmm. And they both obviously had the same program on. And he said they always listened to the same program. It was a farm program in Ohio. They both heard it within the same moments and both stopped. Yeah. <laughs> See, what now happens? Do we lose? Is our equipment junk? Will we have parts or no parts? Has it got any value at all? Is it going to break us? These are fear. This is the fear. So the the farmer, you mentioned it a little bit about the farmer's reaction. They were worried if they were going to find parts, if their yeah. equipment had any value at all. Scared to death. Lose the dealership, probably. Dealers will all be closed. Every potential rumor was there in the coffee shop the next morning. Mm -hmm. People who knew for sure. 
There's always some of your coffees out in those for sure. What's going to happen? Never fails. Mm -hmm. So that that's a perspective that it probably can get lost when when something like this happens. Also, talk about what the dealer, the the IH dealer, thought. What was what was the mo the worry running through their mind at that particular moment? They're going to have a franchise or not? <laughs> Visualize where there was a case dealer in the same town, for example. They were convinced they wouldn't have a franchise because case. Tenneco, who was Case, was buying IH. So the one who has the gold makes the rules. That means those dealers felt we're out. They weren't out. Many times they were the ones that survived because the approach was very good. Case IH worked together with harvester people and they did a good job of picking the dealers that should survive. But there was a tremendous amount of fear at that point. An IH dealer, did did he have a long-term contract or could they cancel him just on the spot? One year at a time. One year, okay. And so it did happen the other way too that, oh, that yeah. some case guys who may have been thinking they were fine, they got they got cut in favor yep. of the IH. Classic story in my book, State of Washington. International case dealer in an old building in a town with John Deere and International Harvester, all three. When it all happened, the Deere dealer had suddenly burned down in that town, and the case dealer went to John Deere and said, can I be your dealer? They said yes. The IH dealer had a brand new building. The case dealer knew doggone well that he wouldn't survive because they had a new building, he had the old one. <laughs> case IH team came in and determined that the guy that's really doing the best business is the case dealer. And he's, but you, you can have the franchise. You gotta build a new building. He said, no I won't. I'm gonna go be a deer dealer, here's my letter. They named him as a dealer because he was stronger than the IH dealer. And he is to this day the dealer. Hmm. And so is the, in fact, the dealer is one of the team that had been deciding who the dealers were going to survive. He was a company man. Mm -hmm. Strange stories that come out of these things. So there's some major dealers, both Deer and Case, probably Agco, who get pressured not to take on short lines. Oh, yeah. And some of them do what the company says and some of them are so strong they don't have to. Is that about right? That's right. And the ones who went ahead and took the short lines oftentimes were the survivors. Because they taking out a problem. Well, New Holland was a great example. Dealership who knew that New Holland had better hay tools than we did. He was new knew he had a New Holland hay tools. He was doing better off. He was better off. I couldn't do that because I had too much loyalty in harvesting. Thanks to Paul for a fascinating look at the past and once again to HBS for making this podcast series possible. We've got even more for you too. To hear more about Paul Wallum's days as an international harvester executive and later a dealer with Wallum International and Central Sands International, be sure to check out the Our Dealer Story podcast with Wallum at farm-equipment.com slash ODSWallum. You can subscribe to Farm Equipment's podcast via Spotify, iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, or TuneIn Radio. 
This will ensure you'll be alerted as soon as new episodes are made. Until next time, I'm Kim Schmidt, signing out of the Our Dealer Story Podcast. <laughs>